there. It's Taylor Hymnus from KSHB 41 coming to you with a really special holiday edition of 41 Files. And this is one that I'm really excited about. First off, a disclaimer. I honestly wish we could do what we're about to do in this podcast with every story we do at KSHB 41. I wish we could. What you're going to hear is the interview that I just did on a story that I'm working for, uh, the audio version, obviously. And you'll hear my questions and the uh, person I'm speaking to's answers, the, the full interview. And I really wish we could share this with every story we do and give you an insight of what these conversations sound like. So it gives you more into insight into what the story is and how we decide what makes it, what doesn't. I just think it's a cool way to present. Anyway, here's the story. We all know Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Written in 1957, we've seen the movies, we've seen the cartoons. It's been around for most of us, mine definitely, all of our lives. We know it. Most of us love it. It's one of my favorite Christmas movies, definitely. This year, the official sequel is out. Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Lost Christmas. It's a whole new tale, a year later, set in Whoville, about the Grinch, who now loves Christmas, and what he wants to do this year. It's written by a man named Alistair Hine, who lives right here in Kansas City. He's known about this for a couple of years, actually. He actually wrote the the book two years ago and is now just now able to talk about it because it's on store shelves and online. He sat down with me, such a cool guy. We had such a great conversation. He's actually written several books for Dr. Seuss, all cat in the hat books. This was his first chance to write The Grinch. You know, The Grinch, like I said, this is the first chance we've had an official sequel to The Grinch's story in 60 years. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I sure did. I really love his insight into how he matches the tone of Dr. Seuss's writing, his respect for it, what he's trying to accomplish. I just really, really love this interview, and I hope you will too. Thanks for listening. Uh, let's get some of the nuts and bolts out of the way first. Um, this is your fifth book, Writing as Dr. Seuss. Is that right? Uh, writing for Dr. Writing Seuss. For Dr. Seuss. Yes. yes. Yep. And, and, and Random House. Yeah. Random House. Yep. Okay. First one was when? First one actually was If I Had Your Vote by the Cat in the Hat. Mm-hmm. Uh, found out about that opportunity in July of 19, and the book came out in June of 20. What's that conversation like when you get called up saying, we're interested in having you write as or write for Dr. Seuss. What, what is what is it that was, like? Uh, it was uh, it was an out of body experience. Um, I got a phone call from my literary agent. So I have a literary agent who represents all my work. I send her my manuscripts. She handles the contract. She sends them to publishers in New York to see if they want to publish them, and she handles everything else in that regard. She called me out of the blue on January 31st at 2:07 p.m. I still remember the phone call and said, "I've got kind of a strange opportunity for you," because she rarely calls me. It's usually everything is through email. She said, um, I just got off the, f- the, I've been emailing back and forth with uh, Vice President of Publishing at Random House and asking her how she's doing and what she's working on. And she um, had said, mentioned that they're wanting to relaunch beginner books, which are the, the rectangular books there, the sequel to The Cat in the Hat, and The Cat in the Hat comes back, they're the smaller size, yeah. with a new title about what would happen if The Cat in the Hat ran the White House and they want to have it out in time for the election mm-hmm. next year. They don't have a title, they don't really have a storyline, and my agent said, well, if there's a chance for Alistair to try out for it, he would faint at the chance to do that. He's a huge Dr. Seuss fan. And the uh, VP said, well, uh, if he would like to try out for it, this was a Wednesday, we need to have his first draft back by Monday. And that was like four or five days away. So got off the phone, drove home from work, kissed my wife and kids goodbye, locked myself in a bedroom for four days straight and just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. 
and there were other other writers trying out for it so there was no certainty I thought you know what at the very least I get to say I tried out for this and that'll be like that that in itself is a dream come true and so I wrote uh, submitted my first draft on Monday heard back that it, it was not heard back about a week later that it was now between me and one other writer. They had kind of whittled it down a little bit, and they wanted some changes made. They were going to give us another week to make those changes, to tweak it, and resubmit, which I did. The morning I resubmitted my manuscript, um, uh, I clicked send on the manuscript, and then I'm originally from Wisconsin. I found out my dad called me that my, my his mom, my grandma, had passed away. She had been dealing with some late-stage, late-life things. So we knew we were going up to the funeral the next week, and uh, the next Wednesday we drove up. It's about a six, six and a half hour drive to get there. We get to my mom and dad's house, we change, go up to the funeral home, and we're, I'm in the lobby of the funeral home with my wife and my cousin, and all of my dad's family are there. There's nine kids and all cousins in my dad's family. I get a text from my agent with a gif of the cat in the hat dancing saying, you got the cat in the hat book. And looked over at grandma and I said, Thank you, Grandma. Yeah. You know, it, it was it was such a strange suit to even be in the position where my my agent called at the right time, like yeah. the exact moment. I can't explain any of that. What a conflict of emotions too for you to be standing there, or was it a conflict? Was it? It just felt like this is where it's supposed to happen. It was, it was strange. Uh, my cousin, who's my age, was my wife and I were talking, and I stepped back. I looked at my phone, and we're at a funeral, and I start smiling, and I'm like, like this, and I look at my wife, and she goes, "Did you get it?" I said, I got it. You know, she gave me a big hug, and it's like all these other, it's a very, you know, it's, it's a sad play, yeah. sad environment. I'm sitting there smiling, so it was a very, very interesting juxtaposition. My cousin said, What's, what, what are you smiling what for? Is what, did you get? what is it? I said, I can't tell you. And I couldn't tell him for another year until the book came out. And then we were, I was posting about it, and he, we follow each other on Twitter. And I said, hey, do you remember that conversation in the lobby at Grandma's funeral? That's what happened. He goes, oh, that makes so much sense now. So, yeah, it was, it was a very interesting kind of out-of-body sort of experience, but a dream come true. Were you exclusively writing children's books whenever you got that? I mean, I'm assuming that's where it went. Were you exclusively a children's book writer whenever you got that? Yeah. I, my, dream, uh, my, my dream growing up was never to be a children's picture book author. That thought never crossed my mind. But creative writing was, had always been a passion of mine in school. Um, and after I, when I went to college, I went to college for marketing because that was the writing part of business. And my dad said, I'm not going to tell you what to get a degree in, but if you get a business degree, chances are you can get a job. I'm like, I'd like a job when I'm done. So he, uh, I went into marketing and um, really loved the creative side of marketing, the copywriting, the coming up with ideas. So creative writing had always been a passion point for me, but children's picture books didn't come into the picture until my first daughter was born. And we started getting picture books as gifts from people, and I started rereading them and all these things and I like to say there were some that I liked and some that, that I loved and others that made me wonder how they ever made it to publication. I'm not going to name any names. Everybody has their favorites but that really inspired me to try to do it and I thought it would be very cool someday if my kids could, hang, could hold up one of daddy's books and say my dad wrote this. That was my inspiration for doing it. So I started writing children's picture books or trying to back in 2008. It took me three, two years of writing so you, you really you don't want to just have one story when you're trying to get an agent. You want to have 20 stories so they know that you're prolific and you can provide and, and have different ideas. Yeah. So after I had enough written, I started querying uh, literary agents in 2010. And uh, my agent, uh, Kelly Sonic, with Andrea Brown Literary, she lives in San Diego, um, 
she she was one of the first agents I queried and she was one of my first no's that I got she said I, I it's not working for me and through a strange series of events over the next year and a half that I, we don't have time to talk through she ended up signing me so we stayed in touch and some things happened and there was some weirdness there but um, it was it was very much um, not on my radar growing up, but uh, exclusively picture books is kind of my sweet spot. I get asked a lot, are you going to do graphic novels? Are you going to do you know, novels? Are you going to do anything? And my brain doesn't really work like that. I'm more sort of kind of short, punchy, rhyming, humor, whimsy, delight, those kind of things, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I hope I answered your question you okay there. Yeah. You said big fan of Dr. Seuss. What does this book represent to you? It's one of maybe the most famous Christmas stories in the world, potentially. Yeah. What does this story represent to you? Oh boy, I have never been asked that question before. That is a really wonderful question. Uh, my childhood, mm -hmm. um, most of the cartoon. Yeah. Um, I think that's our generation, a lot of that. Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff, yeah. and, and just, you know, it, it's, it's ingrained in everybody's DNA from yeah. a certain generation, and even today, too. A lot of folks, though, today, it's, it's the Jim Carrey movie, and it's the Benedict Cumberbatch movie, but for me, it was my childhood. And it was funny, I had this conversation with my dad when I was recovering from my eye surgery that I just had. I said, I often imagine you and mom as kids sitting in your farmhouses watching the TV and watching the Dr. Seuss special. You know, it, it's a weird like connection for me. Like, they never would have thought, gee, I wonder if my son will write the sequel to that. But for me, it's, it's my childhood. It's, it's Christmas. Mm -hmm. Frankly, I've got ornaments. I've got Grinch decor even before I had anything to do with Dr. Seuss. And it's, that book uh, also represents a huge responsibility for me when I was writing this book. Yeah. And so I had this next to me the entire time I was, I was writing this because I wanted to... If he were here today, which he can't be and he's not, I would love it for him to read it, look and say, I approve. Yes. I approve. That, it, that's how I was writing it. That was my goal, is like, what would he say? Am I, am I doing his rhyme meter justice? Mm -hmm. Is the story, you know, is it flowing well? Is it fun to read? Are there surprises? Is there, you know, fun language built in? So he's, you know, he's been a part of me for a long time. I still know in my, we talked about the fact we're both from towns of 1,200 people. My school library hasn't changed much since I was a kid. I went back a couple of years ago, even before I was writing Dr. Seuss books, I knew exactly where the Dr. Seuss books because they were because they hadn't moved. And I walked over to the shelf, I looked in the bottom row, and there they were. And so that book and, and that man in particular have just kind of been ingrained in my DNA. And you know, for the world, this is, that book is such a, a special it's such a special place in people's hearts, pun intended, yeah. with the book, that it's a, this is a, you know, I put a lot, a ton of pressure on myself to, to make sure that, that the work I was doing was, was doing the original justice. I think about strength of story with this book, because 1957, this book comes out. To me, it speaks to the lack of need for a sequel for so long a little bit. Like, it's, it's, we don't need anything else. We get this character. We learn. We don't hurt to learn a lot about his backstory until the movie comes out necessarily. But from the book itself, there's this who that lives above town, doesn't like Christmas, is mad about it, and then changed completely at the end. It's decades until there's a need for a sequel. Why did either the people that reached out to you, where do you see is the, the need to go, we've got more to tell you about this character that you know? 
Uh, one of the uh, editorial directors I work with at Random House uh, is an awesome, awesome woman named Alice Janitis. And Alice, uh, when the press release came out, uh, I believe it was Alice who said uh, one of the biggest questions we've gotten over the past over the past decades is what happened to the Grinch next? So it's a question that has lived at Random House and probably Dr. Seuss Enterprises for a very long time. And that has been there for a long time. And so the, the, the story itself, actually the idea for the story came from collaboration between the Dr. Seuss estate and Random House. So the idea for the narrative, the idea for kind of what his next part of the journey is. It's a year later, you know, has he changed? Has he truly changed? So I think they were, they're responding to a curiosity that people inherently probably have made up stories in their own mind about what happens next, but they said, you know what? We are, we want to take this forward because we want to help to answer this question the best way we can, I think. And I'm speaking for them, of course, but I think that's that's where the motivation came from. I, I creatively, I am very pressure prompted. It's not a place I love to live. But if I know there's an opportunity, or if I know I'm up, up against a deadline, for some reason my brain kicks into a weird gear. And what happened was uh, I had already done, I had written the uh, "If I Had Your Vote" by the Cat in the Hat, and "If I Ran Your School" by the Cat in the Hat, which came out the following year in 21. So vote came out in 20, uh, uh, school came out in 21. I had also uh, started writing If I Were Saint Nick uh, by the Cat in the Hat, which is a very fun story to write, and that, that would come out in 22. But in June of 2021, um, my agent emailed me. Uh, actually, she called me again, and whenever she calls me, it's like it's a rare occurrence. She said, well, I've got kind of a, another strange yet fantastic opportunity for you. She said, I just uh, got off the phone with, uh, or I got an email from Random House, and they said, we want to know, uh, we, we've been reaching out to some other writers, and we know that Alistair obviously has been doing some books with us. We want to know if he has time to try out to write the official sequel to How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and I looked at my watch without looking at my watch. I'm like, I definitely have time to try out for that. So uh, that was how it began, and this time it was kind of the same thing. It was, uh, we want you to write as much as you can in a week, submit that, and that's going to be your audition this time. And so that was, I believe, like June 17th, June 14th. I remember these dates because there was life before and after, right? And I submitted the manuscript, and then you sit there and you just you check your email every 10 minutes, right? So we were going on a family vacation to Colorado for the 4th of July that year. So driving out to Colorado, we're in the mountains. I'm like, oh no, I don't have reception, all this stuff. <laughs> Didn't hear anything while we were in Colorado. And it was uh, July 14th. I, I told you that when I found out I got the cat in the hat book, my agent texted me a picture of the, the, the dance. Uh, I found out July 14th that I got the sequel, and she sent me the the gif of the Grinch, Grinch grin. the Grinch grin. Yeah. So it was. We have a tradition now. Sure. Which, uh, but it was, um, uh, it was again my process when when I had that week to work on it. The blank page inspires me, and for some reason, with Dr. Seuss uh, books, it just flows out of me. I can't explain where it comes from. I can't. I can't like force myself to do it. But when I'm in the zone, it's like I have to just stay there and get everything out. And it doesn't mean that everything I write makes it to the draft. It just means I had to get that stuff out of my brain so that new things can come in. And I wrote. I wrote probably half of the book. Now, uh, what I wrote, some of it made the final cut and other, other things did not. 
but that's the that's the beautiful part. I'm a hugely collaborative person, working with. Um, an editor at Random House uh, named Maria, who is phenomenal. Her and I were partnered very closely on this. Um, I, my belief is the idea doesn't care who has it. So we had a lot of back and forth on maybe we go this direction versus this direction after we started working together. But in the beginning, it was like get as much out of your brain as you possibly can. And there's a, a spread in here that was one of the first things I thought of because um, I. I originally found out kind of what the storyline plot points needed to be from Random House in collaboration with, the, with Dr. Seuss Enterprises. So I had to hit these points throughout the book. It was the overarching, and I'm not going to spoil what the book's about for, for viewers, but it, I, I knew kind of where I needed to hit certain parts. And it comes to a point, and, and it's pretty well known that there's an annual Christmas tree contest in Whoville. And the Grinch wants to prove to the Who's that he's changed, so he enters the Christmas tree contest and wants to, to build the, or create the biggest, most fabulous tree that has ever existed is his goal. So it gets to a point where I'm like, okay, he's got to find out about the contest, he's got to put a plan together, he's got to go get a tree, and then how's he going to decorate it? And I thought, well, we've never seen the Grinch's cellar before. We've never seen different parts and pieces. So I had this idea where he runs down to his cellar because I think of the Grinch as like this collector of things, right? And this idea popped into my brain, um, and it's and it. I wrote it, and it almost is verbatim to what made the final book. And it says, "Our cellar has all of the things we will use to start decorating our tree for the Who's. Grab ribbons," he shouted. "Grab bunches of bows. Grab plenty of these and a big pile of those. Bring everything reddish and everything greenish and every last colorful thing in betweenish." And Max the dog is with him. And it was the greenish and betweenish that kind of popped into my brain first. And I don't know where it came from. I, it's probably just you know osmosis and reading Dr. Seuss books for most of my childhood. But um, it, it the, the the process that that week audition was a lot of fun. It's a ton of fun. It's a, it's pressure because mm-hmm. um, I think you'd asked about you'd asked about pressure. Yeah. Um, it is a ton of pressure because it's a. I want to. I want to get this project. I want to do my very best, but I also have to honor everything Dr. Seuss created to try my best to. I'll never be as good as he is. He is. You know. He's. He's Dr. Seuss. But if I can honor his work in some way, that's that's my goal. The best way that I can. So, ton of pressure on myself throughout that beginning part of the process. But it was fun too. It's fun pressure. So. I read it to my wife out loud last night to okay. get ready for this. We both cried. As, okay. as I read it, I will tell you that. But there's a there's a there's a tone and a timbre to all Dr. Seuss books that I think people are familiar with. The first one, The Grinch Stole Christmas, especially because we watch the movies every year, we hear the Anthony Hopkins narration, whatever it's going through, that kind of thing, of how it's supposed to sound when you read this book out loud. And I think this book is meant to be read out loud, is how I thought of it, as someone who reads to my kids all the time, or did when they were younger. That matching of how the original sounded 50 years, 60 years ago, and making the new one sound that same, hit those notes. How conscious is is the Dr. Seuss style so ingrained in your head that you don't have to think about it as much, or it's more that greenish in between us that you're really thinking about as you're as you're writing this book together and putting the the sound of the words, the music of the words together. How how difficult is that? That that is a very good question. Um, I will say that I was lucky that I had the original book to start with, and even with the Cat in the Hat too, the cadence, the rhythm. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you have it like laid out in front of you as you're going through kind of thing? I, in the beginning I do because once I establish the first couple pages, so on top, up high on Mount Crumpet just north of the Who's, a Who just delivered the day's Whoville news, yeah. the cave on Mount, I kind of look at like conducting an orchestra, if you will. I'm a very musical guy. I don't play a lot of music, but I love music and I really love... But that's how it sounds when you read it out loud. And that's that's kind of my that's kind of my goal and that's, that's sort of how my brain kind of works. Mm-hmm. But in the beginning... I have these books, and I, I want to make sure that out of the gate, um, it feels like it's a continuation of the last thing he wrote. Once I have the meter in place, um, I call it the, the, the power of iggity-biggity. It's a strange thing that I, I came up with when my, my, I was writing my very first story that I was trying to finish. And from a rhyme and meter standpoint, the power of iggity-biggity, well, the thing I use in my brain is is that... The story I was writing at the time had a certain flow and cadence to it. And the, the, the start of the story goes, Liam McCoy is an eight-year-old boy who lives in a typical city. He's thoughtful, hardworking, well-mannered, warm-hearted, delightfully charming, and witty. Iggity-biggity, iggity-biggity, iggity-biggity-goo. Iggity-biggity, iggity-biggity, iggity-biggity-goo. So I put kind of get that rhythm going in my brain. And then after I write the first couple of stanzas, it's kind of locked in, if yeah. that makes sense. That's, that's a very good question. I've never been asked that before. And, I don't fully know how, like I don't say, I don't, like, it's just, it's, it's... Because it has to match up. It does. If it doesn't sound correct, it will not feel like an appropriate sequel. No, and that's where the pressure comes in, too. My other trick that I use, and this is maybe for people who want to get into writing out there, is there's a, um, it's uh, for accessibility on your computer if you're hearing impaired or vision impaired. Mm -hmm. You can copy all of the editorial that you've written, you can hit option escape and the computer reads it back to you in a voice that you can pick from. Okay. My, my philosophy is that if the computer can read it back to me and they get it right with no context and no, that's, then I know I'm on the right path. Yeah. Because there are certain things where you'll, you'll inf- people will inflect certain places differently. I'm trying to eliminate as much of that as possible. I'm trying to get rid of the doubt. Like, this is the way you're supposed to read these things. Right. And having that little tool in my toolbox to just write a stanza and have the computer read it back to me is like, okay, uh, dot matrix over here. Mm-hmm. Sorry, that's an old old reference there. I got it. Got it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can move on to the next thing now because it, it's flowing, it's feeling, it's feeling well. Um, real quick, I do have a very early on, because rhyme and meter is what really got me into trying to write these books. And I said, I need to establish a philosophy. If I'm going to try to do this, because I wanted my last name rhymes with rhyme, I wanted all of my books to rhyme, and they don't. I have some in prose and in verse. I had to come up with a little rhyming philosophy, and, and the one I came up with was, meter matters when you're rhyming, rhyming done with perfect timing, set your stories far apart from those who don't perfect the art. So again, it's back to that kind of bouncy, if you can see the little, yes. b- back when you're, uh, we were kids and the little bouncy ball on it's the music. lyrics, it's musical, yeah. Yep. That's, a very, that's a really great question. I think you know, this is not going to, I don't mean this to be a, a question that humbles you in any way, but Alistair Himes never going to be Dr. Seuss. Like, that's a name that is going to live long past you and I, no matter how many books you write or anything else. Dr. Seuss is always going to be Dr. Seuss. If this book becomes what the first one became, and people know Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Lost Christmas and not Alistair Himes, like the idea of what if it's a rousing success, but that may not be connected to you like a book that is not tied to Dr. Seuss would be. I mean, I don't get the sense that that seems to matter to you a whole lot. That means I've done my job. That's all that means is I've done my job because 
this is his world and I get to play in the sandbox and I'm so humbled and grateful and thankful that I get to do that that if all they remember is Dr. Seuss I have done my job right I, I have done my job so yeah I have no I have no honestly, and this is just me. I have no ego in this. I this very easily could not have happened to me, and the, the series of events that had to happen for me to get to do this, we could we could sit here for a half hour, and I could tell you all the all the all the editors that had to say no to a certain manuscript yeah. to someone who had to. Uh, there was there was a part in the process where. A woman who my agent had sent a manus- manuscript to had retired without saying no to it, and that manuscript was lost in her email inbox, and my agent was trying to figure out who had my manuscript, and that's how she got reconnected with the VP at the right place at the right time. If the woman who had retired had just replied to my agent and said, no, I'm, not, I'm retiring, this is not right for me. My agent Kelly never would have made, never would have been in touch with with the editor at the right time. So I, level of serendipity there, it is it is so strange. It is luck and timing, and you know the, the the thing I like to tell people is the the equation in my mind is luck, timing, and success slash hard work. Right? You can be the most, you could be the best at what it is you do. You can work the hardest to to attain that level of skill. If you don't have the luck and you don't have the timing, you're Picasso without a paintbrush. You know what I'm saying? So I am very, very incredibly lucky that I get to do this. And if if people, there are, I mean, I've heard comments like, I didn't know Dr. Seuss wrote a sequel. I'm like, that's that's the that's the highest praise. Yeah, for sure. I, 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 that will be, that that is absolutely fine with me. This is the first Christmas season for this book. It's, it's inaugural run, so to speak. The first chance that an audience has to, to consume this. Yeah. But you have known this story for longer than this Christmas season. You've shared it with people over this, the course of preparing this book to be a real physical thing. What has been your favorite response to it so far from your wife, from an editor, from some random person that goes, I love this part so much. What has been your favorite response to it this first year out? I think... Selfishly, my favorite response is when I saw the illustrations for the first time. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, I cried. I cried when I saw them. Because it's the Grinch saying your words. It's, it's Aristides Ruiz, who's the illustrator, that put so much love and heart and soul. And when I saw it first, uh, the, the colors weren't colored in yet. It was just the pencil. Or He, he, he actually illustrates in pen, and then uh, he's got his own really amazing process. It was when I saw the illustrations for the first time. Because the way that he and I work together is that we don't work together. Because we don't really have any contact with each other throughout the process. My way to communicate to him is that when I write manuscripts, I always include art notes at the bottom. So I I said, I think I told you earlier, I can't, or I I told Tim earlier, I can't draw to save my life. I've got the curse of the writer who can't draw. Mm I can write. I just I can't I can't get it out visually. So I have to write art notes about what I'm seeing in the scene. And art notes are simply I include those in my manuscripts. They're they're simply suggestions. They're not directive because I don't have any directive when it comes to the visuals. It's me trying to explain to the editor, the art director, and the illustrator. Here's how I'm seeing it. But again, these are just merely suggestions. And 
there's a with with these books in particular it's been really wonderful to see things that I, I thought of verbatim that have come to life far better than I even thought of in my mind but things that I wasn't imagining that are that are like oh my gosh of course that's what it was supposed to be I go back to my original art note I'm like no that was the wrong so you have that collaboration even though you're not collaborating to where when you get the illustrations back because there were certain parts where I'm like how are they going to bring this part to life and it's like oh my of course so you have an illustrator who is and an art director and Random House and the team there that are putting as much love, heart, and soul and pressure on themselves to, to, to bring it to life, to make it look like Dr. Seuss's work as I put on myself to write it and me working with the editors there to, to get it just right. Yeah. So um, that's been my own personal favorite is just I was literally in tears. I was near sobbing when I saw it. And my wife can, can verify that. Um, from a reaction, um, boy, I try not to read reviews a lot. Mm. I try not to. Um, sometimes my agent will send me things. Sometimes other people will send me things. Um, my kindergarten teacher, one of my kindergarten teachers, has been a huge fan since, since day one, since she found out about it. And on Dr. Seuss Day... Uh, in, we, uh, 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 in in March, there's the uh, celebration celebration of read yeah yes. celebration of Seuss. She went on uh, my grades my grade school's Facebook page because they had it's Dr. Seuss Day, yeah. and she goes, "Let's not forget Alistair Heim," you know that kind of thing. So she's been a really great great advocate for that, and so anything she posts about it, it means the world to me because she's one of the one of the best people I've ever met. So. I, I think, as I see it. The Grinch Stole Christmas is about the line that I always think of, maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. That's, that's what I think of when I think of that book. That's what it's about to me. That's what makes me cry when I watch the movie, maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. What is the, the, the theme of this second book that you, if you had to boil it down, Christmas is not about what you buy for other people is the first one. What do you have to boil this second one down to? But this is about belonging. And this is something that uh, togetherness, being together at Christmas, and the fact that he, he belongs. And I think that was his biggest concern in the beginning was he wants to prove that he's changed mm -hmm. because he spent, you know, I think he was 53, years. 53 in the first. He's 54 in this book. Um, although I didn't mention that. I should have. Um, <laughs> it's about belonging. And he had such an epiphany moment the following year. He really wants to prove, and he feels like he has to prove to the Who's that he belongs. And again, I don't want to spoil anything uh, for the book, but um, that's truly what it's all about. And actually, that was something that uh, Maria, the editor, and I, we were talking about it. We were having a Zoom call back in 2021 because I started officially writing it in, July, in August of 21, and I finished up in November. I had multiple rounds of revisions and back and forth and things like that. So Maria and I had a couple Zoom calls to talk through things. And by the way, per your earlier question, this was the hardest secret I've ever had to keep in my I'm life. Sure. It was it was tricky so um, but we started talking about I was I was getting toward the end of the book and she, we started talking about it and she she had kind of made a comment she goes you know he just really wants to belong and I went like the the line that ultimately happens in the end of the book popped into my brain and I, I said it to her she goes yes and it was like one of those collaborative moments where um, that's really what it's all about. I think we all want a sense of belonging. The Christmas, you know, the Christmas season is that time of year where family, friends, love, everything becomes more important. And the fact that they 
continue to love him unconditionally. And he, you know, it's that he, he just wants to belong and uh, togetherness. So, yep.